So let's, let's, let's ask God to be with us uh, before we look at His Word. Our Father in Heaven, we simply pray that You would be here by Your Spirit this morning as we look at Your Word and study it and meditate on it together. Thank You for the great and awesome truths it contains. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we have a relatively lengthy passage Um, So we're Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 41. Um, I wonder if I might get a couple of volunteers to maybe break that up and and read read the entire passage for us. Any volunteers? Okay, so Tyler, why don't you start, and then stop where it seems about a third way. Lori, you pick up uh, and do the same, and then Brian, you finish this off. Nice and loud, though, okay, because, yeah. Acts Acts chapter 2, verse 14. uh, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall have visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all 
the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from the crooked generation from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were at that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, great, thank you. So we can see that there's a summary verse. Um, if you look at verse 36, when Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then shortly after, in verse 38, he says, therefore, repent. Okay, so if we're going to understand, I think, the weight of uh, what's going on, we have to think about the context that Peter's speaking into. Um, uh, we have the expectations of the people for what the Messiah is going to be. And... Um, I wanted to read a couple of passages for you to just put a little flavor on the, the uh, milieu of what Peter's speaking into um, just after the resurrection happened. Okay, so this is Matthew chapter 27. This is the scene at the crucifixion. It's going to be a familiar passage. Uh, let me read a few verses for us. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you, would you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So basically what's happening is, Jesus is in his ministry claiming to be uh, the Messiah, to which the Jewish people perceive to be um, a military ruler, right, who's going to come and liberate them from the Romans. And that is part, um, being king, of course, is part of what the prediction of the Messiah was to be. But there's also another side to being Messiah, which was, which was what? Suffering. Right, so uh, the suffering servant uh, motif, which the people um, weren't prepared for, right? So... Um, even people within Jesus' circle, so I want to read another passage to, to continue to flesh this out just a little bit. So this is um, a few verses from the Emmaus Road account. So we're familiar with Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. He's now 
encounters these two men uh, on the Emmaus Road. And this, again, is familiar, but let me read these verses for us. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, so what we have is Jesus himself explaining that there was a multi-dimensional facet to being Messiah. Right? There was this suffering servant who was to be the high priest, the ultimate high priest of God's people who was going to suffer and pay for sins and make a way for forgiveness of sins. But also a whole on the other side, there's a whole other dimension of Christ, which is his kingship, his lordship over all. And the people could not really conceive of those two things blending together. And so they had a, a pretty um, narrow expectation of what Messiah was going to be. So that's, if we, if we have that in our backdrop, and then we go back again and look at verse 36. So Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. So what do you think is are possible ways we could render Peter putting these two things out there side by side and saying there's A and B, and Jesus was actually both A and B? What, what, would those, what are possibilities for those two things? Well, what does he mean by Lord? This is not a trick question, but what does he mean by Lord? God. What, what category for what we were just talking about? If Peter says, yes, this Jesus, who you said, if you really are king of the Jews, come on down from the cross. By the way, I hope we feel, I hope we can existentially feel the weight of that moment where Jesus is, hanging on a cross, and human beings are at the foot of the cross and saying, you said you were, you said you were king, we doubted you this whole time, now we've pinned you onto a tree, let's see you prove it now. Which is interesting as we talk about the resurrection, right? Because there's a big proof is coming. Um, anyways, Lord is master. Lord is King. 
when Peter says Jesus is Lord, it almost goes beyond the conception right of earthly king. It is Lord. So what do you think might he mean then when he uses the word Christ as a both and? It, it, it would be odd, I think, if those were synonyms that he would put them side by side like that in that phraseology. So Christ means Messiah. Uh, but, it, you know, looking at it this way, you might say, ah, the other picture of the Messiah, the, the suffering servant. Yes, yeah, so that's what I think is happening. I think Peter is trying to expand in the mind of his audience that Messiah, by God's determination, is a much broader um, role. And because if you think about it, the people all, all saw Jesus um, get crucified. This has just, just happened. And now the resurrection has also happened, and there's accounts of it floating all around. And so the part of Messiahship, which is the payment for sins, is... Um, in the background almost visually for these people at this time, right? It's the kingship of Jesus, frankly, that is, even at this point, um, Jesus' kingship has not been visually... Um, uh, well, we, well, well, let's ask the question. Um, what type of proof was offered the people that Jesus was the king. Um, and I, and I'll, even, I'll even expand the question to prior to, his, prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. What proofs did the people have that Jesus was the Messiah? Um, and what proofs were they not given? So I want to think about that together. What, what, what were they shown and what were they not shown? Good, yes. Talk and the transfiguration, they heard the voice again, but only three three of the disciples heard that. Right, yes, good. And all the miracles, but um, a lot of people did miracles. So that wasn't really what they were looking for. They were looking for some big heavenly stories. Yes. In one cycle where we Jesus Christ on board, and there were when the word of faith, so when couldn't obey to a human being. Right. So Jesus said, "Be calm to the storm," and the calm and the storm was calm. So we could we could roughly have a category that that we would call signs and wonders, and within signs and wonders are miracles or maybe even the voice of God coming down in affirmation of Jesus. Um, so there's, there's, there's that whole category of proofs, if, you wanna, if we want to term it that way. Um, what else, though? There's another big category. Yeah. Um, he taught with authority, and it was authority that other religious leaders sometimes felt threatened by. Yes. Yes, yeah, so for example, we do have 
we do have accounts where Jesus took out the scroll and read about the Messiah and then rolled the scroll back up and says something like, this person that was just spoken of is here and you're misreading the scroll team. Um, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that would fall into your category of that he spoke in a, in a, in a way. But that, right. I don't know that that's evidence, right? He could have been just... Yes, okay, so we have... the, And this is where Peter goes as part of his sermon here um, to the Old Testament predictions... Um, and prophecies about the Messiah, which Jesus uh, fulfilled. But what types of proofs were not given to the people? Military and political conflict. Okay. The, the kingship that they were expecting, there was very, very little evidence of that, humanly speaking, Right? Um, we're going we're gonna to think through that a little bit here coming up, but I just want to put that on the table for us to think about. Um, he raised people from the dead. That's pretty... Signs and wonders, which, by the way, signs and wonders were also predicted as proofs of the Messiah, so they're kinda, that's kind of in both categories. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to argue that what was done was enough to be in the category that should have trumped the people's misunderstanding of of what Messiah was going to be. Ben. Yes. So, uh, good point. And so that's that's a whole another part of the discussion. Is is um. I mean, Jesus says, well, even if a man were to come back from the dead, people still aren't going to believe, which is ironic because who came back from the dead and who? So you're, you're getting into sort of what does it, all these evidences at the end of the day are not the heart-changing power, right? But for now, for this discussion, I'm, I, for us to understand what's going on with what Peter's saying, um, I want to I want to think about um, these proofs that are shown and, and not shown. So, um, you know, even if we go back to Acts chapter one, even the believers um, are still sort of even the people who are with Peter and who are who have who have repented and are on are, who are believing Jesus. Even they are saying, they say, uh, so. When they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's like as if they're saying, all right, it's, it's go time now. Like, we, we're, we're all with you, you're resurrected, but now you're really going to come and do what we thought you were going to do in the first place. Our agenda. So let's start seeing some fireworks, you know. And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, Jesus is a real king. The real king determines which threats are the real threats to the people. And he goes, regardless of what the masses are saying in the, in the brew houses, right, and deals with the real threats. And you can see the masses are still like, hey, it's time to, it's time to pick, 
pick up your kingship and, and crush our immediate enemies. Um, so, I'd like to think together about what what were the error, what errors were the people making with regard to their um, belief paradigm. They were thinking entirely in human terms. Yes. Just what they could experience right there in that moment in that world. Yes. They were taking the evidence and weighing the evidence, the evidences wrongly. By the way, I'm just going to show one of my cards here what I'm actually trying to do. We are the they. Uh, So, right, exactly. Thank you. I don't need to elaborate on that. what else? What other what other errors, Clay? There's this sort of preconceived notion of what the Savior would look like and who the Savior would associate with. Mm-hmm. So then when you have somebody that comes and says they're the Savior and now they're associating with cleaning prostitutes' feet and helping the lowest low, that doesn't exactly fit their description. And so uh, right. that's sort of wrong. And what's behind, do you think, but what's the heart attitude behind people determining what their savior should look like for themselves? How much will benefit them? I'm sorry, what? How much will benefit them? Right, but I'm after more of um, a diagnosis has to be made for internally for people. Then they prescribe their own medicine and then they look for their medicine to come. And if it doesn't look like what they prescribed for themselves, their godship just got questioned. Okay, so this goes all the way back to the garden, right? Which is, we want to be our own boss. And we want to determine for ourselves even what we need to get out of a big hole. Like we're being oppressed by the Romans. And we need a military leader to come. Where were the people that are like, we've got a huge sin problem between us and a holy God. And if God's telling us that his savior is going to save on the level of ultimate spiritual reality, we, we need to submit to that. Right? Now, this idea that God knows what we need is a, is a huge lesson that I think this this proclamation of the resurrection hammers home and I'm going to try to show that here in a second Um, so in light of this the significance of the resurrection let's let's shift into that and talk about that I think that the resurrection is God's way of shouting um a divine affirmation from heaven that Jesus is the priestly sacrifice for sins that is acceptable and that Jesus is the victorious king that has triumphed over his and our true greatest enemies and eventually all enemies. And it's God's way... And this is the part I really want to emphasize because we're all, of course, 
everyone here who's a believer is familiar with the idea of the resurrection and that Jesus died for sins and God said, yes, this was adequate. I raise you to validate it. Or we might even connect it directly to those people at the foot of the cross saying, if you really are the king, prove it. Come on down. And God proved it by not only having, if he had come down from the cross in the middle of all that, that would have been one thing. But to be, to be dead and buried and then come down off the cross, as it were, is a much louder declaration of affirmation of Jesus, right? But what I want to emphasize is the shouting part of it. This is, G, this is God the Father declaring to the world that Jesus is who he says that he is in all of his dimensions and that, frankly, the things that are getting debated on ground level between human beings should be getting drowned out by the shouting of, you know, I, I like that, that you brought up um, this verbal affirmation of God on Jesus. Um, you know, uh, this is like that times a, a million, that God would bring him back from the dead. Um, and here's why I'm saying that. Were the people actually given the proofs that they wanted prior to... I mean, they're, they're there with their hands on their hips saying, okay, you don't look like a king to us. We're going to crucify you. Then when he was resurrected, he still hasn't shifted into consummation of his kingship, right? Visibly to the people. I mean, it's almost as if Peter's saying, here's this great reality to reorder how you're, how you're measuring everything. Now, how is that relevant to us? I think this is so relevant to us. Um, When we are wrestling with our own doubts, for example, or when we have circumstances in our life that, that if we were to just use the circumstances as the rubric for let's just take let's just say is god loving does god love me if we were to use this human circumstances only kind of like the people did at the time jesus showed up on earth what we're, what conclusions might we be tempted to draw again this is not a trick question here Comment. I would be one of the worst person at that time because every day I get situation, I look at the situation see, as a human being. Yes. Um, you know, for that matter, um, we could say, well, what proofs do we have right now that Jesus is king of the universe? ourselves. Um, Jesus is absolutely on the throne reigning. What proofs do we have, humanly speaking, uh, for that? So, 
what's the what's the Christian answer to this? If if I if I have a brother that comes to me and he says, "Man, I've got this going on in my life. I've got this going on in my life. I just read this book that really makes me wonder if God's loving at all." You know, what's our answer to that? Where are we pointed to by the New Testament authors? Romans 5, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still yet sinners, he died for us. And then the resurrection proves that. It's the objective evidence. So we look to the cross when we doubt God's loving God at all. While we're loving God, send his own son to die for us. Yes, and so what I'm trying to argue is that that reality is in a whole different category. It is not a counter-argument that comes along against your doubts, and it's like, ooh, you know, that it, that it just sort of edges them out, right? This is more like God saying, this is ultimate reality, and... If we're just going to be honest for a moment, we are not given answers to every single one of our questions. And I think that the passage from Acts 1 has that flavor, right? It is not for you to know everything that God's doing. God is God. God is king. Kings do things that they are free. And so I think for us, the question kind of swings around on us. It's do we have that paradigm? Are we living out our Christian life with that paradigm? That this declaration and demonstration of what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead and validating his priestly role as a substitute sacrifice for us and also validating his kingly role as... Um, having authority over us. Are we holding that in the proper category of our heart so that these uh, smaller issues are held in the proper perspective and considered by us to be smaller issues? Does that make sense? Um... I, I always have appreciated when I when I hear sermons um, or when I hear someone read passages that that are along the lines of you know what more could, could God do than to send His own Son to us, right, and then valid and put a seal on it by raising Him from the dead. Um, now, some people might answer, I'll tell you what he could do. He could walk in this room right now, and he could answer all of our questions, and he could stop all the suffering in the world. But really, if we, if we say that, then we're, what we're saying is, well, we demand God to jump through our hoops and not be the king that he says he needs to be. And we now have, we now have made the same error where we've elevated ourselves to try to put ourselves at back up on the board of directors 
Um, Yes. And that's why we call it faith, because there are some, like the Bible says, faith is belief in things unseen. If God did everything that we wanted him to do to prove that he was God, he would no longer be God, because he would not be requiring faith from us to believe in him. So we're not believing, it's not blind faith. Each one of us in our lives have had experience with him, where we know personally that God uh, express his Godship to us and through us and through other people around us. And some of those experiences have been very traumatic and very painful. And we know that without the divinity of God and the grace of God, we wouldn't have made it through that. But I can't write that out mathematically and prove it to someone. If someone comes to me, as you said earlier, and said, I got this problem, I got that problem, and I read the Bible, and I want to know what God's going to do to solve my problems, my answer is I can't, I can't answer that question for you. I don't know what God's going to do about your financial situation or your relationship situation. I don't know what God is going to do about each one of these specific, real human problems that you have. And if I could explain that to you, then there would be no more mystery left in God. There would be no more requirement for our faith. I think at some point we have to understand that we can't explain everything to everybody to their satisfaction. And that's what happened you know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And even after he rose from the dead, people were still trying to get him to explain things to them in terms that they could understand. Rather than getting them to understand that if you took an act of faith on their part in response to the grace of God. There are a lot of people, and I've had conversations with people, that have challenged me to prove that God exists because they don't believe God exists. I don't have an answer to prove to them that God exists because there is a point where human understanding stops and we can't fully understand God. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, another way of sort of articulating what you said is that uh, Keller says this. I think it's a, it's a nice formulation. You know, God, he doesn't give us all the answers to all of our questions. He doesn't give us a perfect argument, but he does give us a perfect person. And um, the embodiment of that person is like God's way of saying, this is the way home to me, but you don't get to invent your own way. So you have to accept this on my terms. And I think this sermon, we see a lot. We see some people that God wakes up through this sermon that says, I will accept your terms. We crucified the Son of God. And I don't think they understood everything. Obviously, they didn't, because we have so much evidence of what (laughs) the true believers are saying to Jesus after the fact, you know? They didn't get all their doubts answered. They didn't get everything resolved. This greater light shone on them, and they're like, they just said, we're jumping off, we're jumping into this. We don't have to have all the answers. Now, I think a lot of answers can be had. So I, I don't want to say that I think this is a cop-out where we, where we don't have to get serious about looking at what God has given us by way of certain arguments and, and all that. But having walked along with God for a good long while now, being 47 years old, I am ready to say the 
person of Jesus has to trump my doubts. It's the simplest way to say it. The resurrected Jesus as Savior and Lord is sufficient for me, or he's not. And I am thankful to report, just for my own personal witness to you, that um, God has really met me personally in that way. I mean, I feel, whenever I start tilting my head, I'm like, man, that's what do I do with this thing over here? What do I do with this poor girl that was born into a ghetto and had no chance of it seems like, and then died some horrible death. And, you know, and I, and in my heart, I'm like, how is God fair? And how is that right? And how is he loving? It's just as one little example of a rock I get in my shoe from time to time. But then I look to Jesus and I say, well, wait a minute. It can't be that God's not loving because I have this greater truth that drowns that out, but I don't have my answer. I can't write a pamphlet on it that's going to make someone that hates God in their heart not hate him if they're not going to look to the person of Jesus to let that trump the other things they don't understand. Um, I, had, uh, I had written down here to discuss together some, um, to kind of drill into um, this next. So Peter says, repent. So there's this call to these folks to repent and it's it's a command and it's a call and there's a there is the promise that God will forgive whoever repents right on on the heels of this command to repent but I thought it would be helpful for us to think about let's say you were one of the people there listening to that sermon And let's say, it is probably likely that some of those people were at the crucifixion scene, right? I mean, Peter says, you crucified him. I think that's probably literal for a lot of the folks that were listening to this sermon. Now, when Peter says, you've got to repent and receive this forgiveness that your high priest Jesus has done for you, If you imagine these folks actually repenting for individual sins, what do you think would be on the top of the list? Because sometimes I think we we, we are like, okay, yeah, repent for my sins. So it's like, it's sort of, you know, so I just walked up and I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, everything I've sinned is terrible and I need forgiveness. But... You know, if we take Peter as a case, Peter denied Jesus, right? He denied Jesus, he denied Jesus. Then Jesus came back and pulled him aside and forgave Peter in a personal way. And Jesus knew what was going on in Peter's heart. And I think that was, that's true of all of us when we, come, when we come to repent. We're not repenting generically, right? So what do you think was on the, the, the top three bullets of of the tip of the typical person that was one of the three thousand that turned and said, "Yeah, I'm in. I want it." No super right or wrong answer here. I just want to think together about it. Maybe some of them had been in the crowd cheering on the crucifixion, um, or witnessing it and agreeing with it, needed to repent for that at that level of participation. Because, because. They had it wrong, right? So 
that repentance means I was cheering, but I had it wrong. But what part? What parts do you think they're like? Well, we had we had this wrong. I had this specific thing wrong. Um, Going my own way, choosing to do what I think is right instead of uh, listening for God's will and plan. And it sort of goes to the Satan offering Christ the kingdom, and that's what everybody wants the whole kingdom of the world. My way. Yes. Yes. And related to it, as somebody's already said, you know, my theological understanding of the Messiah, which, you know, was, was a true part of the picture for most Jews, you know, the conquering king, he will be. Uh, but uh, repenting from my theology to say, okay, now I get it. Jesus was right, and the things he was calling me to understand differently. That's right. Now, now I'm ready to believe. Yes. Well, it certainly there would have been more concrete sins. Yes. Yes. Adultery. Yes. These people were coveting their wives, and this was something that was. Yes. This was in Israelite society. Yeah, I think that. And I think. Yeah, also, another, sorry. Go like, like this sort of Jewish nationalistic pride, right. sense of superiority that we are the Jews and the Romans shouldn't be ruling over us. This isn't right, but just the sort of superiority complex that they all have. Yep. Yep, because um, right after you repent and get brought into the community of believers, Right after that, Jesus, well, in the passage that we just read, Jesus gets asked, so when are we going to start really kicking some, some, you know, bottom? And, um, <laughs> and he's like, you don't worry about that. I've got a job for you to do. And job number one is to go to the Samaritans and preach the gospel to them. And then many of them receive the gospel, the Samaritans. It's like... That would have been, <laughs> that's a huge evidence to them that their whole world, their whole system, their whole paradigm is they've got to, and I think the point that I think is so helpful for us to see is that they had to receive that from God. They had to be willing to say, okay, teach us. Because that didn't happen, I don't think that happened overnight. I think that happened over time. It's like, and, and the key thing is the trust and faith to not come off the... When God says, okay, now accept this. Now accept that these dietary laws are not everything. Now accept this. Now accept that circumcision, this thing that you thought was just baked in, is not going to be absolutely necessary. It's hard for us to feel the weight of some of these things, but the, the underlying heart disposition is that we are willing to receive what God has for us, both in the for, uh, the forgiveness of our own sins and the establishing us as children, but also in God's call on us and the mission that he gives us 
that I feel I feel sure folks did not understand, or it just required submission to God. Um, I do think the more uh, to your point, Peter. I do think that um, there was a way that that the Jewish folks typically were viewing their own standing before God with regard to their moral to the law, and that this outpouring of the Spirit brought much more of a, a Sermon on the Mount style um, uh, verdict, where people we're waking up to the fact that, oh, wait a minute, I need a divine savior to bridge a divine gap that's caused by my, by my sin, which was yet another thing that had to be received by faith by, by people. Um, okay, so I do want to make sure that we hit and observe this sort of good news that's... Um, Peter mentions here at the tail end of the passage. If you look with me back in verse, let's go back to verse 38. Um, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So what's the promise? Why that terminology? Yes. I'm sorry. A son to become a son to become a child of God, okay? Do we see any specifics here in the text that we might hang on the that terminology of promise? Forgiveness of sins and yeah. the Holy Spirit. If the forgiveness of sins and receiving the Holy Spirit does not come by God's promise to give it to us if we repent, what are some other channels that we might imagine that getting right with God would come through? Yes. Okay, so this is not, um, you know, uh, this is Christianity 101, but Christianity 101 is pretty crazy awesome and profound. Um, Yes, I think that we don't want to lose the impact of Peter saying right here, right after he told, right after he told people, you literally crucified the Son of God. I mean, could you imagine the weight of that if you had seen that with your own eyes? And then he says, this forgiveness that's being offered to you is being offered to you by God's promise to deliver it by in the name of Jesus. And it's another way of saying, free of charge to you, because you could never make yourself right with God. And that's the whole point of why Jesus had to be crucified and, and um, be the high priest, right? Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the previous verse, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
but the promise goes back. That yes. That goes to Isaac, the child of the promise. Yes. What was the promise? I will be your God, and you will be my people. Yep. And so this is the, the new covenant. This is one of the first statements of the new covenant. That was the old covenant. Keep my law, I will be your God. And the covenant, if you remember, there's the animal that was split, and the participants of the covenant pass between, and let it be to me like this animal, like break the covenant. Well, mm-hmm. had the they had been But this is the this is the new covenant. Thank you for bringing that up because um, that language of the promise I think would absolutely have been a I think his Peter's hearers would absolutely have picked up on and connected that promise back to the Messiah and um, it's it's uh, they were expecting a new covenant right of course Yes. They thought that that was it, and then it would be that, and they would be, and then you know, then you yes. have your whatever whatever it's going to be. It would be this is the right order of God and us. And oh wait, there's a new covenant. This is different, and it's not just for Hebrew blood. Yes, and never, and really, it never was. Right. Um, uh, but. But no, that's a great point. Um, any other thoughts or questions, Peter? No, I just um, any complimentary to that idea is really good, really key point. Um, just made. I think um, the promise. There's a promised land associated with the promise, right? There's still a, an earthly inheritance I think, that doesn't. It seems doesn't seem like it's totally being being. Um, Dismissed by Peter, right? So Peter is Peter. Peter is not saying Peter is not spiritualizing the promised land, right? And he's actually not not saying there is no promised land here anymore, because I think very much present in their minds is is there's a there's a connectedness to the land flowing with milk and honey. You know, this is the this is the inheritance that we have as sons, right? Um, this is this is part of the promises. This thing, this this shalom, this heavenly kingdom. That is coming and is given to us, right? So I just think it's important to note, notice that 
Peter is not debunking that or, or saying, no, that's not a real thing. We're not, we're not moving there. He's just saying that promised land is for everyone. Yes, um, and I, th- I do think in the context of talking about the resurrection, talking about who Jesus is in these these different roles, and then having the the reality of the resurrection just flat out preached, you know, to affirm who Jesus is, and then connecting that to forgiveness of sins, and then referring to the promise. I do think the promise is multidimensional, so I I I would say um, that. Um, that's that topic is like obviously a, 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 a large topic, um, and that I would agree that it's not an abrogation of older promises. But but the but there's a pointing going on that the promised land ultimately is going to be all of God's people restored with God forever in in heaven, right? Um, so. Um, other thoughts or questions? I don't know if um, what. <laughs> Whatever heaven means, right? What was the understanding? Or do we need to go back down to what the Jewish understanding of heaven was at the time, or even what ours is? We don't know. The new heaven, the new Yeah. Go ahead. We're going there, all right. Let's open it up. Heaven is a Christian president of the United States. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and it's already passed. We had Jimmy Carter. So, heaven, uh, the Bible tells us some things about it, but it is beyond our clear comprehension of what what that's going to be like. That picture is so much bigger than we realize. The plan is so much bigger than we, we realized. Um, but what I really wanted to say was, <laughs> uh, uh, you talked about the shout. Yes. Um, and I believe for, you know, the, the women at the tomb and the disciples, you know, and Thomas, you know, seeing the wounds of Jesus and his hands inside, you know, that came across as a big shout. Um, often in our lives, we hear the we only hear the echoes yes. of the show. Um, and Jesus, I think, maybe made reference to that when he said, blessed are you, Thomas, you know, you believe, see, but more blessed are those, you know, who won't see and, and believe, who won't hear the full volume show, you know, but just echoes yes. of, of that. Um, and so as people just hear echoes, we really do need the you know, the full uh, church and, and all the things God has provided, you know, since the shout, you know, to uh, reinforce those echoes for us and to, mm-hmm. to help us at, at those tough times. Um, uh, what I was saying before about not being clear, I think two pictures of where God wants us to be by the time this life is over is like Job, who, you know, was really struggling with his theology and what he expected to happen in life and his this great disappointment. Uh, and God apparently never gives him an answer, as, as I read it, uh, you know, why this has happened to him. Uh, Job, uh, certainly there's no hint that Job 
learns about Satan, you know,'s conversation with God and their bet, so to speak, uh, on whether somebody would be good even when it doesn't seem good for him to be good anymore. You know, good for goodness sake. It, uh, but he does, like you said, get the person of Jesus or, or get the person of God at the end, and that's enough for him, mm-hmm. even though he doesn't get the explanation. Right. He has some idea that there's so much more going on here that I have a clue about. So I just have to trust the Lord. Uh, and Jesus in in his life on earth, you know, as far as the, his first life, you know, he ends up dead on the cross. Uh, but as a human being, those difficult times transformed him with regard to his human nature, I believe, into the man, you know, God wanted him to be and the kind of person he wants us to be. So we have to live knowing there's so much more to the picture, we just see a little bit of it, and we just have to trust God to the times when. We have have to tune our heart to the places where God is shouting the loudest. Um, We have two sacraments in Protestant Christianity. One is baptism, and one is communion. Communion is... A picture of the broken body of Jesus and it is a food that if you go without you will starve and die and it is also a picture of the blood of God himself that has been shed for us and here's and maybe we'll just close with this I, I think this is God has raised Jesus from the dead he has established and affirmed him in every way possible and then he's given us a tangible uh, method to say don't forget this thing let it be the thing that trumps and drowns out some of these other things I know that you're on a pilgrimage I didn't give everyone else the answers you're not having all the answers frankly I might just add it's impossible that we would have all the answers. It's ridiculous. I mean, even with human reason, we could take a step back and go, who do we, how could we possibly imagine that we're going to understand God's sovereignty and man's free will? How could we even possibly think that if God tried to explain the dual nature of Christ to us, that we would understand it? Instead, what he's given us is a shout from heaven that these things are true and you need to trust me and you need to rest in that and you need to prioritize the conversations inside your heart along the lines of what I've said is most important. I'm not saying that's easy, but that's what I think is a, a good takeaway for, for us from this, um, from looking at the resurrection in this uh, passage. So, Let's close there, um, and I'll pray for us. Our Father in Heaven, we praise You for Your mighty acts of, of salvation that You have clearly demonstrated. There is no 
confusion about your gospel. Help us to believe and help us to receive what you have for us in Jesus. Help us to receive Jesus as merciful Savior that paid for all of our sins. And help us to enthrone him on our hearts and to submit to him as king. And help us to see this world rightly and to not be rattled by all the small things of this life that sometimes bring into question um, your character. But Father, may we fix our eyes on Jesus and may we be filled with his love by your spirit. And Father, we pray for all the work that you've given us to do and what you've called us to do. We pray that you would fill us and give us everything that we need to step out and to serve you and to to love you and to love other people. I thank you for this time that we've had together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.